0: Hello, I'm Nina Law.
1: And I'm Max Lydiot. We're psychiatry residents at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and welcome to the History of Madness podcast.
0: In this podcast, we will be telling fascinating stories from the history of psychiatry.
1: Alright. Well, in, in this podcast, we figured we'd kind of do something a little different. We've the past couple episodes, we've been doing our own research, trying to like put together a narrative of like a particular aspect of the history of psychiatry. Uh, but for this episode, we figured it'd be useful to actually ask an expert, someone who not only has a pretty extensive knowledge of history of psychiatry and interest in history, but also someone who's actually had lived experience. Um, so just to introduce, uh, Dr. Steve Wangel graduated from the University of Nebraska Medical Center in 1986 and continued at UNMC for psychiatry residency as well as an additional fellowship in geriatric psychiatry. He was chair of the UNMC Department of Psychiatry from 2005 to 2018 and has previously been named in US News and World Report's Best Doctors in America. Currently, his clinical and academic duties include serving as the Assistant Vice Chancellor for Campus Wellness for UNO and UNMC and the Director of the Geriatric Psychiatry Division. He also sees geriatric outpatients in his clinic as well as local nursing homes. So, Dr. Wengel, welcome to the History of Madness. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Welcome to the podcast. Um, So, a lot of our listeners are in the mental health field or the medical field in general. And I think something that we're really curious about is how has the field of psychiatry in general changed since you were a resident in the 1980s? And I was hoping you could kind of set the scene for us. What was the hospital like? Mm-hmm. Um, what were the inpatient units like? What what were you like yourself as a young resident?
2: Well, you know, uh, that, those are great questions. Uh, the, I have to reflect on what I was like. I guess I was idealistic like a lot of folks. Uh, and uh you know saw psychiatry as having a great future but of course no clue as to what that future was and and you know could not have predicted some of the things that have happened uh in the last 30 years so i i guess when i put this in context of of what what's been happening in the field i started kind of as um kind of deinstitutionalization and things like that were uh well well force, certainly, because that started back in the '50s and '60s mm-hmm. but you know i i didn 't know it at the time, but looking back, I think that 's kind of what we were seeing you know the 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 downsizing of state hospitals, for example, uh, back when I was a resident, we used to be able to send a patient that had really chronic difficult to treat uh, psychiatric problems to one of the so called state hospitals, or we call them regional centers in Nebraska. And you know the, we had relatively easy access to those back then. Uh, they were still available. Nowadays they're really not, for the most part. So if you had somebody that really again had an intractable or a real difficult problem, you had a you had a long-term uh, kind of place to send them. But we also had more acute beds than we do now, or at least in some some of the systems. And uh, you know, it kind of the players change. You know, some hospital mm-hmm. systems. Uh, have more psychiatric beds now than they did then, and some have fewer. So the, the numbers sort of change. Uh, and people used to stay in the hospital a lot longer. Mm. I would say back then we were just hearing from one of our colleagues that it was that used to be a psychiatric tech in one of the. One of, actually, the, the inpatient unit we used to have here on the medical center campus, he said the average length of stay for somebody with depression back when he was a tech was a couple of weeks. Hmm. And that's the average. Some people would stay for many weeks or several months if needed, or in one case, he mentioned somebody that was there for a full year. That was certainly unusual to stay that long, but it was not the the you know s- short number of days like it is now. Um, for better or worse. But back then, again, people could stay longer. I remember when I was a medical student here, actually, uh, we had a person with depression and probably a borderline personality disorder that was getting inpatient psychotherapy as well as treatment for depression. And she was there for at least six weeks or whatever. And so as medical students, we got to see them every day and do therapy with them. And you know, when you actually have that much time with a patient, you could actually uh, make some progress doing psychotherapy as compared to now when you might have a three or four day stay. And again, not not to say that's a bad thing, I mean obviously most people want to get out of the hospital as quickly as they can, I know I certainly would. Mm-hmm. But for folks that need a little more time, uh, back then we had that option. It seems like that those options are kind of limited nowadays.
1: Now, just for some context, is that like a person who'd be there involuntarily, or is that kind of a voluntary admission? Actually, most of
2: those were voluntary, believe it or not, back yeah. then. Some certain, yeah, certainly some some might be involuntary, but actually back then it was kind of considered wow. sort of the norm that people would stay longer. But that was true across the board in med surge uh, things too. You know, uh, uh, maternity wards, people would stay, women would stay longer after giving birth and so forth. But <laughs>
0: Um, What about people with other diagnoses, like psychotic disorders, how Uh, long would they usually stay?
2: Yeah, that could be weeks and weeks uh, often. Um, In fact, I remember we had a young person with really severe obsessive compulsive disorder that was there for, again, well over a month, if not six weeks, because, again, he was getting medication but also getting a lot of intensive psychotherapy back Mm -hmm. then. So. The other thing that reminds me of, though, is I mentioned, you know, the the hospital beds, you know, it seems like we had more of them, more acute beds and more chronic beds. Um, There was actually a movement back in, what, late 80s, I guess, again, when I was still in the midst of my residency, when because of the funding, uh, freestanding psychiatric hospitals started popping up around the country. Again, I don't remember the details of the funding and why that was made possible, but it became economically viable for a say a for-profit company to build a psychiatric hospital, maybe in a rural area. There was one, for example, called Rivendell. that was, I think, in Seward, Nebraska, kind of a relatively small town, and just out of the blue, they built a uh, you know a child and adolescent inpatient hospital. You can't do that nowadays because the the economics doesn't work out. You can't, you know, at least in uh, the Midwest, you know, having a freestanding hospital, in other words, a psychiatric hospital that is just by itself not part of, say, a med surge campus, uh, it's too expensive, you know, Mm -hmm. hiring the staff and, you know, building the building and all the, you know, the infrastructure costs. But back then it did. So you would actually see, like... You know, these these uh, hospitals kind of popping up like mushrooms after a spring rain it seemed like for a while. So that was kind of like this golden age of inpatient psychiatry, I guess. Now again, was that a great thing or not? Not I don't know, but at least then we did have a little more access to, to that level of care. Now I, having said all that, I don't want to trade, I don't want to go back in time because we have a lot of treatments now that we didn't have back then and we've come a long ways. But I wish, in some ways, though I wish we could have a little bit of a hybrid. I wish we could maintain some of the new things that we have, and yet have access to some of the resources that we used to have that maybe we don't have so much nowadays.
1: You mentioned the kind of tra- changing treatment landscape. Do you mind kind of commenting on how treatments have changed over the course of your career? Yeah.
2: So um, certainly one of the one of the major one of the main areas uh, I. I I would say, would be the advent of some of the newer psychopharmacologic agents. Mm. Um, I think we take it for granted now that we, you know, maybe have always had some of these newer agents like the SSRI antidepressants and the the newer antipsychotics, but that's not the case. When mm. I was a resident, we had the uh, old-fashioned antipsychotics. We didn't know that at the time, <laughs> the first-generation ones, that's all we had. Uh, and. Um, they worked, but they caused a lot of neurological side effects. Uh, lots and lots of Parkinsonism, you know, like tremors and things like that, and lots of tardive dyskinesia, which you don't see as much nowadays, I don't think, but back then that was pretty common. So that, 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 that was not the good old days of psychopharmacology, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, the other area, though, that I think is really a big change is with the newer antidepressants. So, when I was a resident, or at least the first half of my residency training, we had uh, tricyclic antidepressants and the MAO inhibitors, uh, which I think a lot of psychiatrists don't use anymore because they have a lot of side effects. They worked really well, you know, they treated depression quite well, I think, um, but they do have a lot of side effects compared to the newer agents. So the newer agents, the first one uh, was fluoxetine or Prozac that came out, you know, when I was halfway through my residency, and I remember having a patient uh, with depression that I was not sure what to do with. He had, he or she, I can't remember, uh, had not done well on, you know, a tricyclic, and I think maybe had not done well with an MEO inhibitor, so I wasn't sure what to do, and my... Uh, attending faculty member, my supervisor said, "Oh, I, this new drug is out called Prozac. Why don't you try Prozac?" Hmm. And uh, I'd never really heard of it, so he had to teach me about it. And because back then we didn't have the internet where you could look things <laughs> up uh, or phone apps that that we all have nowadays. So he was telling me about it. He'd been to a meeting, a national meeting, and he'd heard all these good things about it. So he was telling me about Prozac and said, you know, it's pretty easy. It comes in a 20 milligram dose. So you start people on 20 milligrams and you keep them on 20 milligrams. And that was kind of, and that was sort of an, a, a novel concept because the other drugs we already had, you had to start with a really low dose. Because of all the side effects. And then every three days or four days, you would gradually increase it. So it was a very tedious process to get somebody started on an antidepressant because, you know, you couldn't just put them on the final dose. You had to start low and gradually move it up. But with Prozac, like, oh, you start them on the final dose. And I, was, I think my jaw sort of hit the floor when he said that because I couldn't understand how you could have such a safe medicine that you didn't have to start with these tiny little baby doses and work your way up. But he said, no, that's th- the case, and has very few side effects compared to what we were used to, and uh, in fact, that was true. So I think that's been revolutionary, that we have newer drugs that don't necessarily work better. I don't think they necessarily cure or treat depression better than the older drugs, but they certainly have fewer side effects in general.
0: So is there still a place for you know, MAOIs? Would you ever start a patient on one?
2: Okay. Yes, and I did, sometime in the last calendar year, I have a patient with severe depression that hasn't responded to any of the newer agents, uh, and I did actually start them on an MAO inhibitor. So, they're still available. Uh, that's the other thing. You know, I, I hope the drug companies keep making them, because you know if people don't prescribe them much, sooner mm-hmm. or later, maybe they'll go away. I hope that doesn't happen. Because I think they're very valuable. I think they do really work quite well for some patients.
0: Yeah, I feel like in residency we're not really taught how how to use them
2: and I think part of that is because you don't the faculty members you work with they have to be comfortable with it themselves so I think it's almost like you need to work with somebody like me in their 60s that has had a lot of experience and feels comfortable with some of those older drugs because you know some of the maybe some of my younger faculty colleagues haven't really had much exposure to them
1: yeah I think I if, speaking from personal experience, I've never started a tricyclic or an MAOI. Yeah. Um, I wonder, like, between the different SSRIs, there's a lot of, like, differences in practices okay. and, like, nuances in how you would choose a medication. Does that same thing exist with the the older antidepressants, or are they kind of more homogenous?
2: There there were some, some specific differences. There was... Um, uh, one that's I think still available amoxapine that was kind of interesting it was tricyclic, but it actually gets metabolized to loxapine, which mm-hmm. is an antipsychotic And so sometimes you could use a single drug to treat de- uh, psychotic depression you know mm-hmm. because it its major metabolite was was in fact an antipsychotic. So that was one difference and there's also a big difference in how anticholinergic they are and of course anticholinergic side effects are real common. Uh, side effects of a lot of different medications, dry mouth, constipation, things like that. And so we, we had to learn those differences. Um, those are usually annoying and sometimes dangerous side effects. On the other hand, sometimes you could exploit those side effects for people that, say, had chronic diarrhea, some, you know, using an mm. antidepressant that actually has some anticholinergic side effects might actually treat, uh, you know, the, the side effect might actually treat their GI problems, for example. Mm. So little nuances like that, I guess.
1: Interesting. And now you'd mentioned that um, when you were resident, you had a faculty member who had heard about Prozac at like a national meeting. Can you tell us a little bit about how drugs, particularly the SSRIs, were marketed to psychiatrists?
2: Yeah. So back then, there was a lot more, um, you know, contact with so-called drug reps, you know, pharmaceutical representatives. It was very, very common that we would um, see them several times a week, you know, they would mm. pop into the clinic. They sort of, I, I refer to them as sort of free-range, you know, they sort mm. of had free free run of the hospitals and the clinics back then. Nobody really regulated that, so they would pop in, and of course they would pop in with food typically, and that <laughs> would get them in the door. and. Uh, you know, the receptionists and the, the support staff would, uh, you know, get a little bribe from the drug rep, and that would help them, you know, get, get access to our break rooms and things like uh-huh. that. So they would bring pamphlets and other information about new new drugs, as well as, you know, little chotskis, you know, little reminder stress balls or mugs or pens or whatever, in addition to the food. But it was actually quite common. In fact, many um, clinics. Again, not just psychiatry, but internal medicine, family medicine, pediatrics, whatever, a lot of times they would uh, run their meetings or they would have like a noon meeting, a staff meeting, and they would deliberately do it at a time when a drug rep would come and bring in lunch. That was considered to be just sort of a normal thing back then. Mm -hmm. And then we realized that that was having undue influence on our prescribing habits, and particularly with our trainees. And so now, at most academic medical centers, or maybe all of them, a number of years ago, they really started clamping down on, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical reps having just free access. Now they have to register, and they have to, you know, and you rarely see them. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. thinking, have the two of you ever? Had seen a drug rep in our clinics? I'm thinking probably yeah. not. Never, right? no. Yeah, and we don't have them come here anymore either, so it's it's an interesting thing. For the longest time though, physicians uh, would, would typically say, you know, I am not influenced by this drug rep coming and trying to sell me their product and bringing me lunch, you know. Other doctors, yes, they they're they're more gullible than I am, and they they fall prey to uh, the wiles and the sales tactics. But I, not me, you know. I'm. But study after study has shown that's not true. And they actually monitor physician prescribing habits after being so-called detailed by a drug rep, and they can see a spike in prescribing habits uh, of that particular agent
1: hmm. you,
2: after a uh, after a person gets so-called detailed.
0: Um, So do you remember back in the day when SSRIs came out, if they were marketed directly to the patients, like some, like they are today, you know, commercials playing on TV, were the patients, did they usually bring up wanting to start an SSRI, or was that something um, you guys brought up?
2: It was always initiated by us, or, or the patients would sometimes hear about it from word of mouth from other patients, but they were, but at that time, back in the 80s, uh, the the FDA had not yet allowed direct-to-consumer marketing, or DTC, I guess they call it. I don't remember when that happened exactly, but that's a relatively recent innovation where the FDA allowed drug companies to market uh, directly to consumers. So now we've all seen those TV commercials for a variety of ED meds and you know uh, depression meds and antipsychotics and all the rest. So now it's commonplace, uh, but... 20. Well, let's see. I don't know. Again, again, I can't remember exactly when, but at some back when I was in training, that was not the case. And so um, it was really physicians that got all the marketing attention, both through drug reps coming to your clinics, but also you know ads in journals. We still, of course, have those. You know, but it was really physicians that drove drove uh, the prescribing back then, rather than the, right. But right, right now, patients every day will come to me and say, "Oh, I saw this drug on." you know, advertised on TV, and what do you think about that for me, Dr. Winkle, and sometimes it's a good choice and sometimes it's not a good choice. Um, But you know, it's, it's an interesting thing where patients are, you know, bringing up options that maybe I hadn't considered. I've had at least one example where that actually worked out very well. A patient brought up an option I really hadn't considered because they saw an ad on TV and it actually worked very well. The downside of that though is that they don't usually talk about the cost and newer drugs that are being marketed, well, guess what? You know, if you have a if you have to have a marketing budget, that's very expensive and all that. So new drugs are, are tend to be pretty expensive and patients don't always realize that. And so it sometimes can be disappointing for them to you know, ask to be prescribed something, and I'll say, sure, we can try that. But then they go to the pharmacy and get a get sticker shock. Mm-hmm. You know.
0: So this kind of leads us to our next question. Um, you kind of mentioned patients are bringing up the you know what drugs they want to be started on. How how else have patients changed throughout your years of practice?
2: Yeah, I think they've become uh, a lot more assertive, which is a good thing. Um, I think there was. There was sort of a culture, you know, sort of this unspoken relationship between physicians and patients many years ago, where you know the physician was seen much more as an authority figure, and um, and I'm I'm not even I'm struggling for the right words to say, but it was much more it was a it was not a collaboration like I think it can be nowadays and should be nowadays. Uh, It was more um, paternalistic, maybe if that's the right term, you know, or. You know, we would sort of, physicians would sort of dictate treatment and tell patients what what was best and wouldn't necessarily go through a lot of options, and patients wouldn't always ask a lot of questions, but I think nowadays patients are much better informed because of things they see on TV and obviously the internet and elsewhere, and uh, they often Ask really good questions that are much. You know, I think it's really good. I think that's a really good thing that patients are 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 better informed and more mm-hmm. assertive. And to to where now, I think it is. I see my role as I'm still need to be the expert and need to know a lot about medications and side effects and all that and and how to diagnose somebody. But by the same token, I, it's not. I, I don't feel like I should be paternalistic and to tell the patient what to do. Mm-hmm. I will give them my advice, give them the options. But and then give them my best advice. But I, but it, to me, it's a it's a give and take more than it used to be. I think.
0: Hmm. Um, in terms of how patients change, how about the types of patients or diagnoses you're seeing? Hmm. Um, has that changed?
2: Hmm. Wow. Great question. Well, I I think so. And as you as you say that, it makes me think. For for one thing, I think it seems like bipolar disorder is getting diagnosed a whole lot more than it ever was, especially the subtler forms of it, like, you know, cyclothymia. And I, I wonder if some of that is misdiagnosis, you know, mm. where, you know, people that have sort of normal ranges of, of highs and lows maybe get, you know, get misdiagnosed. Um, also, I think they're trying to, trying to sort out what... Is really truly major depressive disorder that where a person really needs or would benefit from an antidepressant from, again, normal sadness uh, or other other kind of mood conditions uh, is sometimes hard to see, sort out. But I think more more and more patients are asking for antidepressants than they used to, um, partially because the new they know that the newer drugs are safer. Everybody knows somebody that's mm-hmm. been on say an SSRI. And most of the time, they they the story they hear from their friends are that they were helpful, and they had usually not a lot of side effects. Again, I don't want to minimize them; they have their own brand of side effects to be sure. But uh, but I think they're not seen as uh, so difficult to take or having so many side effects as the older drugs. So in other words, more and more patients I think are reaching out asking to be treated for depression and, and we are much more liberal about prescribing I think than we would have been many years ago mm. just because the newer drugs are safer. So if, in other words, let me give you a, a real life example. So I'm seeing an older patient and they're, they're sad off and on and maybe they're having some occasional insomnia and so forth but they don't have the full range of depressive symptoms that we're taught, uh, taught to look for. But they seem to be pretty distressed. And do I take a chance with them uh, and offer them an antidepressant? Or do we say, you know, this really is kind of not a full, full-fledged full major depressive disorder. Maybe, you know, psychotherapy, if they're willing to get it, you know, might, might be beneficial rather than a medication. Or let's just take a wait-and-see attitude and see if this gets better on its own, that sort of thing. Those are all reasonable approaches. But I think more and more... Patients kind of expect us to prescribe something when they mm-hmm. come to see us and we kind of have gotten conditioned into giving them that prescription. So it, I don't I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe we're maybe we're more, you know, aggressively treating things, which is good. You don't want to leave major depression untreated. But sometimes I
1: wonder if we're over
2: you know, maybe mm-hmm. over diagnosing it or over treating it a little bit. I don't know.
1: You mentioned kind of your experience with that patient. I know this is going to be a hard question given your, like, many years of practice, but can you tell us a little bit about your most memorable patient? Well,
2: you know, I was I was thinking back, and uh, I, I think the one that stands out in my mind was a woman, older woman that we actually admitted to the hospital many years ago because of some uh, dangerous behaviors, inadvertently dangerous. She wasn't doing anything deliberately dangerous, but she would, you know, I... I well, I'll give you a little example. She would like set small fires in her mm-hmm. apartment to warm herself up. Not because she was a pyromaniac or she was trying to burn the place down, but she was cold and the heating system wasn't working right. And apparently she just thought, well, you know, starting a small fire like maybe in a, in a, you know, on a plate on her kitchen table was one way to stay warm. And that was the way her, her mind worked at that time. Mm-hmm. So because of that and some other behavior, she wound up getting inadvert- or uh, involuntarily admitted to the hospital. In the course of seeing her and meeting her and getting her, uh, you know, admitted to the hospital, she uh, revealed that she had many, many different delusional ideas. Um, she knew a number of really famous people, Supreme, Supreme Court justices, and at least one really major celebrity. Uh, she uh, mentioned that she had written a number of uh, books that were published, and and hmm. that it boy, just one delusion after another, and that she had written a famous song that we would all know. Um, and again, I won't say what it is out of respect to her and privacy, but, you know, all these delusions. And so uh, so we admitted her to the hospital, and we had to have a board of mental health hearing and all that, and went through all that. In the course of her hospitalization, and she was in the hospital back then for a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. uh, one night while she was there, Uh, A famous actor was actually in in Omaha uh, doing a a one-person show down at one of our uh, theaters. And he actually pulled up, apparently after his show, his limo pulled up to our hospital and came to visit her afterwards. And uh, so it turns out not everything she told me was a delusion. Many still probably were, but it's like, oh, that made me much more humble to think that, uh, you know, uh, some of the things I thought were maybe not true were actually based in reality. Huh. So.
0: That actually happens to me a lot um, mm-hmm. because I saw a patient, she claimed to work in Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, but then she also has a ton of other delusions, uh-huh. and then it turns out she actually did work in Hollywood.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that interesting, right? Yeah. So we, we sometimes, I think, unfortunately kind of kind Of brand our patients to say, okay, just because you know, 50% or 70% or 10% of what you say uh, appears to be delusional, that everything is, but they're human beings after all. So, yeah, well, those are good, good lessons for all of us
1: here. That's it's very interesting, um, just kind of reflecting on the, the patient stories you brought up, the, the most memorable patient, um, your experiences with like the changes in practice over the years. It seems like kind of a common theme is like humility and maybe mm-hmm. like a recognition recognition of our, our limitations as psychiatrists. I wonder mm-hmm. if you can comment a little bit about that and what your experience of that has been over the wow. years.
2: Wow! Yeah, what a what a what a great question and observation. I, I would say, yeah, in thirty or thirty one years of practice, I, I can't say that I'm the most humble person in the world. Just ask my wife, but, <laughs> but uh, so I can't take credit for too much humility. But I would say. Professionally, it has, yeah, the more I practice, the more I realize how much I don't know. Mm. And I don't think it's just me, but I think collectively. We have learned a lot about the brain, and now we have functional imaging like PET scans and functional MRI and, and other things that we inspect and so forth that we didn't used to have. So we are gaining on it. We are learning more about the brain, but I would say the advances maybe are not... As fast as we would have predicted when I was in training mm. that you know we still are uh, you know we 're still looking for biomarkers for depression. I remember when I was a medical student, we used to do dexamethasone suppression tests, and mm. they always that was the students that got to do those and that test is is one where you give a patient you know a dose of a high potency steroid and then you take blood samples every half hour for the next couple hours to see if it suppresses their cortisol uh, production. And um, if a person has untreated major depression, that doesn't ha- they don't suppress. So they keep making cortisol even after they take the steroid. Normally, your body would shut down your cortisol production, but with depressed folks, they would. So we would do those tests, and by golly, sometimes the depressed folks would have too much cortisol even two or three hours later. And so that was kind of like our big test to see if they really had depression or not well, what are you going to do differently? We're still going to treat them even if they, even mm-hmm. if they didn't have an abnormal dexamethasone test. And then later, the, the researchers found the predicted, pr- predictive uh, value of that test was about 50%. Oh, wow. So it was about the same as flipping a coin. So we stopped doing it. But the whole point being that that was back in the 80s. We were, back then, we were looking for that magic test that would really prove that this is the diagnosis a person has. I think we're still looking for those things. Mm-hmm. Again, we're better now than we are. And we, you know, PET scans... Demonstrating hypofrontality, I guess, with uh, people with schizophrenia and things like that. But we're still not at a point where the average psychiatrist can use a biomarker kind of test in their clinic and mm. really find it useful. I mean, we're doing genetic testing and things like that, which can be helpful, but it's not. It's not where I would have, where most of us would have predicted we would be 30 years ago. Do you
0: think, compared to in the 80s? we're more biological these days, or do you think we've actually swung a little bit um, back towards the therapy model? Where, where do you see the field going in terms of this yeah. biopsychosocial?
2: Yeah. Stuff? Well, again, uh, a, a, a thought-provoking question. I, I I do think I think I think the, the I would agree with, or I would I would favor the the tail end of your question there. I think we're kind of swinging back. So I think we so. Just to back up a little bit. So again, when I was starting my training uh, back in the 80s, there I knew psychiatrists that really were psychoanalysts. Even here in Omaha, Nebraska, this isn't a hotbed of psychoanalysis, but you know we had a few that were classically trained. One of my first mentors at the VA was somebody that trained at the Menninger Institute. He was a psychoanalyst. Uh, you don't run into too many of those, at least in Omaha, Nebraska. Some some other parts, you know, the coasts and so forth. Maybe maybe you do. Um, so but then we got away from that and we moved into you know, a very, very biologically based uh, profession where very few psychiatrists did any, any, mm, any great deal of psychotherapy. Uh, and partially, partially, or actually to a large extent that was driven by reimbursement. Mm-hmm. that insurance companies basically didn't really want to pay psychiatrists to do that because other people, you know, uh, master's level, uh, therapists and psychologists could do do psychotherapy and it, at, at a less expensive rate, frankly. And so I think they, you know, for a variety of reasons, psychiatrists got away from doing psychotherapy and just really were doing full-time prescribing. I think things are shifting back. The reimbursement model has changed a number of years ago and it's made it practical now for psychiatrists to be able to do some of both, you know, mm-hmm. prescribe and do some psychotherapy. and. I think there's much more interest among, like your generation, in getting back to that. And to me, that's the fun part about our job is that we can, you know, talk neuroscience with one patient and talk about, you know, serotonin and, you know, dopamine receptors and all that. And yet we can also speak psychotherapy with other patients or mm-hmm. with the same patient. Frankly, um, to me, that's the the really exciting part about this job is we get to have a foot in both camps. I think.
0: Do you think there's value in psychiatrists um, doing psychotherapy Mm -hmm. instead of um, letting other professionals who do therapy do that work?
2: I think so because there's, you, you, you know, there's certainly more continuity. Um, if I have uh, a patient where I'm doing the medication prescribing and they see a therapist that's in the community, and we have some really fine fine counselors and therapists that do great work in the community, but, you know, we, we're busy. We don't run into each other all the time, and so continuity, you know, comparing notes and being able to talk about what we each are seeing going on with that patient can't doesn't really happen on a regular basis, whereas obviously if I'm doing both, I know what's going on both mm-hmm. in their... The, the therapy they're getting and the medication prescribing because I'm doing both. The downside of that though is that it's you, you see fewer patients though, right because those psychotherapy visits tend to be longer and so at a given day you can you see fewer patients. And that's a problem because access to care is so hard right now. There just aren't enough mm-hmm. psychiatrists or other per- mental health providers, as you both know. And so there's, a, there's kind of a relentless pressure to see more and more patients and get them in the door. And I understand that if, if somebody's suffering from depression, they don't want to wait a month or two months or three months to see somebody. They don't want to get in quickly. So that's that's always the tension. Mm-hmm. But, so, but I think this guy the, psychiatr- the cur- you know, I think psychiatrists can do some of both. you know maybe you're not, maybe you're not doing psychotherapy with every patient, but you can do that with some because I think it is it does recharge our batteries and lets us exercise our therapy muscles as well as our prescriber muscles.
1: When, when you reflect back on your career in the like 80s, 90s and early 2000s, was it more like a, like a philosophical orientation more towards the biological med management bent? Or were there other factors that kind of influenced that that have since changed?
2: It's some of both. I think you know, again, there's the there's always the economic thing, and you hate to say it, but that does mm-hmm. drive a lot of our behavior. But there was a philosophical thing too that when we were start first starting to learn about some of the some of the biology of uh, mental illness, uh, for want of a better term, uh, we really got very excited about the biological aspects of things, and I think mm-hmm. we really kind of bought into that very very quickly. Uh, For example, we had one of the first PET scanners in the region, if not the only one in the region, many years ago, Um, again, when I was finishing my residency. And so back then, a lot of patients would undergo PET scans because, you know, we were unclear about the diagnosis. Is this schizophrenia? Is it depression? Is it bipolar disorder? Whatever. I'm not sure how m- many times the PET scans really clarified the diagnosis, but we certainly we certainly used it a lot until it eventually was. I think it was probably economically not viable, and it eventually went away. But it was over on 10th Street, uh, which is was next to a freestanding hosp- psychiatric hospital now closed uh, many years ago. Hmm. But, you know, PET scans, really, when you think about it, are, are not, especially a freestanding, it was a freestanding PET center, so it was all by itself, it wasn't attached to a wow. med-search hospital. And that's a very expensive proposition, because you have to have a physicist there that kind of <laughs> makes up the isotopes, because they're very short-lived nuclear isotopes. So it's a very expensive deal, but somehow we pulled it off for at least a few years, till. it kind uh-huh. of went away. But we've been striving for that. We've been striving to really try to understand the brain uh, for, for many, many years, because it is still kind of a black box, I think. You know, it's a very complex organ, more so than other organ systems, I think. Mm.
1: That's fascinating. And has the, speaking of economics, has the, the provider shortage that we're seeing now Is that a new thing? Is that a kind of a chronic issue? It seems like it. I don't remember hearing a lot about Hmm.
2: this many years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I mean, there there was always plenty of business and it seemed like we've always had lots of patients trying to get into our clinics, but I don't remember hearing this relentless drumbeat that we do now of, you know, uh, just lack of access to care. so again, I don't know if it's, if it's different. Oh, I think it is different, or I think it is worse now. And I think part of that is uh, kind of the aging of the workforce, like mm. people of my generation. Uh, for a while there, there was sort of a lull or that psychiatry was not as popular a specialty as it, I think, is now. Um, I'm really, really happy to see, though, that this has become a, um, a, a much more popular uh, career choice for our medical students. It was not, you know, 20 years ago. Mm. It was, uh, you know, we still got good people coming into it, but it, we really had to entice them and attract them. And now it's much; it seems to be a much more popular thing. I think it's gained a lot of traction.
0: Right, it's like competitive to get into psychiatry yeah. residency these days.
2: Yeah, yeah, which on one hand is hard for the people trying to get in, but it but it's gratifying in the sense that it seems like we're sort of coming of age here. But you're mm. absolutely right, it was not at all competitive. Many many years ago, was, mm. you know, we oftentimes psychiatry programs wouldn't fill, you know, uh, wow. yeah, back in you know 20, 25, 30 years ago. But yeah, it's a it's a different ball game that way. Yeah,
0: there's like less stigma for the patients, and there's yeah. less stigma for medical students who want to go into that's psychiatry. True.
2: Yeah, well. that's a, that's a, you hit the nail on the head because I remember when I would. Uh, you know, when I was like a third-year student and leaning towards psychiatry, sometimes a faculty member and attending physician would ask me what I was thinking about. And if sometimes you had to be careful what you said because mm-hmm. you tell the tell certain faculty members they would deride you, you know, believe it or make make supposedly mm-hmm. funny jokes, you know, or they would say things like, "Well, you seem too normal to be a psychiatrist." <laughs> so that, that still happens to this day. Oh you know, yeah. You know, and you just sort of laugh it off, I guess. But uh, yeah, but I think you're right. I think there's a lot less stigma for our patients and for us, I curiously enough.
1: You know, talking about the, the history of, of psychiatry, I want to kind of pivot here to, to something else that I've found interesting that you've kind of witnessed the tail end of. Um, so deinstitutionalization uh, started in the 60s and it's been a pretty significant challenge to our field over the last century. What have your experiences been of that?
2: One thing I've noticed as a geriatric psychiatrist is the increasing number of patients uh, winding up in nursing homes as they age. Again, being a mm-hmm. geriatric person, that's the population I serve. Uh, but people with schizophrenia, with bipolar disorder, with uh, you know uh, history of severe substance use disorders, and so forth, that wind up in nursing homes as they age. That's not new, but it's much different, or much more so it seems to me. Uh, it seems to me that nursing homes have become one of the uh, replacements maybe for some of those state hospitals that we were mm-hmm. talking about earlier, um, at least for people. Well, but it's not just older people. They will take younger adults too, and that's the other thing I've been seeing more and more of. People in their 40s and 50s with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, whatever, that are not able to uh, maintain, you know, independent living, and then wind up in either assisted living or nursing homes. Mm. So it seems like we're seeing more
1: of that in the last ten or twenty years. Do you, do you feel like that's like a better or an adequate care environment compared to what you've observed previously? It's
2: that's a really, really interesting question, and, and I'm I'm kind of torn. Um, the the big institutions, you know, the big state hospitals, at their worst, were bad places to be sure. That you know, there's lots of concerns about patients being warehoused, you mm-hmm. know, being there forever, for years and years, with really inadequate treatment and uh, and so forth, which I, I do believe did happen. Having said that, some of the better-run facilities, I think, were very humane, and they would provide people with meaningful activities and things like that. I remember one of them, one of the smaller state hospitals in Nebraska, when it was still running, they had a director that came in uh, from, I think, the East Coast, and he, uh, one of the first things he did when he came here was uh, buy a bunch of exotic animals, like llamas <laughs> and alpacas and things like that, and he wanted, you know the residents there, the patients, uh, to have something to do, something meaningful to do, and you know they would groom these animals and take care of them and so forth, because you know we all need something something that gives us meaning. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't know, it seemed like it worked pretty well. I thought it was kind of a novel idea. I don't know. I I think he kind of got some raised eyebrows from the state auditors, you know, when they (laughs) got the bills for, uh, you know, exotic animals and stuff. But by the same token, unfortunately, sometimes patients with chronic you know, and severe mental illness would get uh, taken advantage of financially by mm-hmm. some. I don't think it ha- Hopefully, it didn't happen here, but unfortunately, it did happen elsewhere. Where you know, might put them to work doing other things against their will, and you know, putting you know, that 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 that's not good. So, is a nursing home better or worse than one of the state hospitals? Uh, not clear. They're smaller, mm-hmm. and they're certainly. I think the care is more humane. I mean, you don't, you know, you you don't. You wouldn't run into the, the economic thing where people are maybe maybe working involuntarily and so mm-hmm. forth things like that. By the same token, the, the different nursing homes have different cultures, I guess, and different you know levels of uh, staff engagement and activities and things like that. So some of them they're really well run. Patients do have good you know things to do and lots of social activities and things like that. So it can go either way, I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: If you had a magic wand and you can kind of do whatever you could in the field of psychiatry, what what would that be?
2: Wow, wow, good question. Uh, you know, I would, I would. I think the first thing is, and again, I hate to keep coming back to money, but money drives so many things. You know, Make sure that um, the field, not just us, not our salaries so much, but the field in general or that care for patients is adequately reimbursed and that everybody has access that needs to or wants to has access to a therapist. Well, part of that too is we need to crank out. We need more therapists. There aren't enough, mm-hmm. not only not enough psychiatrists, but there aren't enough therapists for people that are getting therapy separate from their psychiatrist. Uh, but I think also just... Those social determinants of health are so important. You know, adequate, safe, affordable housing, and, you know, food and insurance and things like that. Because uh, that, it's pretty hard for us to fix those problems by giving somebody an antidepressant if mm-hmm. they don't have, you know, a safe place to live and enough to eat and things like that. So I think we need to do all of that. So we need more providers, but I think we also need to kind of work on these other aspects of, of people's lives equally important
1: and speaking of kind of magic wand kind of wish things is there anything that you you've observed in the past that you think psychiatry is lost and maybe hope mm. will come back
2: well i i do think again that most people are still not doing a ton of psychotherapy so i do, as we talked about before i do think that's that tide is turning i hope and i, I do hope that comes back um i think uh you know, having some sort of longer stay opportunities for people that do need it. I think particularly people that have executive function problems. That's the way I kind of look at the world, as again, as a geriatric psychiatrist, that I think a lot of, a lot of what psychiatrists treat is, are, are conditions that produce executive dysfunction. What does that mean? You know, trouble with judgment, trouble with insight, things like that. And right now we don't have uh, good treatments for a lot of those conditions. Sometimes we do, like, okay, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, is, you might say, a treatable form of, you know, executive dysfunction. People that have untreated ADHD have trouble focusing and concentrating, and they sometimes make you know, kind of poor choices because of their condition, and then we treat it, and their decision making gets better. I remember reading a study years ago of adolescent drivers, were you know mm-hmm. with ADHD, and they found that when they were being, when they were driving with an adult rater, like a driving rater in their back seat watching them drive. Uh, But they were untreated, their ADHD was untreated, they drove poorly and Hmm. they made bad decisions and they drove too fast and they wouldn't always stop at stop signs and all do other kind of impulsive things. Even knowing there was somebody, an adult in the back seat, you know, with a clipboard monitoring their driving because they just couldn't help it. And then you treat their ADHD and they drive More safely, so that's a that's a treatable form of executive dysfunction. But I think we see a lot of other forms of that that are harder to treat. I think you know schizophrenia. We know that negative symptoms of schizophrenia are harder to treat than positive symptoms. That to me is like a frontal lobe kind of executive dysfunction thing. You know how do we treat that? Um, You know dementia certainly various forms of dementia. That's one of the hardest parts of treating dementia is people that have behavioral problems. They're Hmm. aggressive or they have Inappropriate sexual behavior, or they yell all the time, things like that. We don't have good treatments for that because, again, essentially, what we need to do is restore frontal lobe functioning. I guess and we don't have a way of doing that right now. Mm-hmm. If we could figure that out somehow, that would be a that would be a big thing, or prevent the obviously if we could prevent those problems in the first place. There's a, incidentally in my field, geriatrics, there's a lot of uh, work being done, and neurology, I guess, even more so, of trying to. Trying to prevent dementia in the first place, because so far our treatments of dementia have not been very successful, as you as you know.
0: Um, so, what is your advice for young people who are interested in psychiatry today?
2: Well, go for it, first of all, because we need <laughs> you. We need more. All hands on deck, uh, as our, as uh, some of our colleagues or our leaders will say. But I think it's really it really is an exciting profession, and I think it's a great profession and. It's only going to get better with time as we understand more and more about the brain um, the, one thing one specific piece of advice I would recommend to people is they look into some of the novel little Not little, because they're really important, but some of the novel niches of psychiatry now. Positive psychiatry, for example. We now have a book, a textbook on positive psychiatry. The psychologists are way ahead of us on that. Positive psychology has been a movement in their realm for a long time. But for too long in psychiatry, we've been very pathology focused. Mm. You know, look for problems and fix them. Which we still need to do, and that's that's a big. We can really help a lot of people doing that. But the but but the positive psychiatry movement is saying let's keep that identity, but let's add to it this other identity of prevention. How do we, um, you know, maybe can we prevent depression, can, or minimize it, and things like that? Can we prevent or minimize anxiety by lifestyle changes? You know, getting enough exercise, getting enough sleep, things like that. Uh, we haven't done as much of that as we could, I think, in my field. Um, so that's that would I guess that would be my advice is, is look into prevention and look into lifestyle psychiatry and positive psychiatry those are two relatively novel and new areas of our field that I think are getting a lot of traction
0: What do you think makes a good psychiatrist?
2: Um, to me it's listening as much as anything uh, you know right it's you have to have knowledge obviously you have to know about Conditions that we treat and how to diagnose them, and you have to know about the medications and the other treatment things. But it, to me, it is sometimes it's pretty simple. it Comes down to listening. You know, are you really spending enough time? And listening alf- also equates to time because if you don't have enough time, if you're trying to see too many patients in a day or in an hour, you can't. You just don't have the time to listen to them and hear the nuances. You know, and the, and the things they don't say. The the you know what what else what else is going on in their lives they are not telling us about that are influencing them
0: what inspired you to be a psychiatrist
2: well you know to me it was a large largely mentorship i had a really great experience as a as a junior medical student when i did my rotation my psychiatry rotation i was really lucky i had a couple of really great faculty members that inspired me. They they listened to their patients, they listened to us when we were presenting patients to them, things like that. So it was, um, you know, to me it's all about listening. Uh, I guess
0: a bonus fun question. Who is your favorite psychiatrist from history? Oh
2: boy, wow. Oh, that actually, I do know the answer to that. I'm gonna, it's gonna take me a moment to remember his name. Ah yes, Milton Erickson. Milton Erickson, and that is probably not a name that is familiar to either of you. And judging by your head nods to the negative, I'm right. So Milton Erickson is a really, really, was a really interesting uh, guy. He's a psychiatrist that had a private practice in Phoenix, Arizona, and he was well known to, uh, in a couple ways. He was apparently considered to be the. not to be sexist but it was considered to be the father of medical hypnosis in the US so apparently he did he really uh, promoted hypnosis as a therapeutic tool again obviously hypnosis predated him by a long long time and freud got into hypnosis and charcot and all that but but apparently in the US he was considered to be a big prop you know promoter of of hypnosis but to me the more the more interesting thing is he developed a form of therapy that i think now is called strategic therapy it uh some people would refer to it more as like um, uh, reverse psychology huh. he would do he did he he just did these fascinating things with patients where he would take a patient for example that uh, wanted to quit uh, biting their nails or something and come in with a specific habit and he would work with them, and he would give them a, 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 a prescription, a behavioral prescription, where he might have them do the behavior more, like, well, you need to spend twice as much time biting your nails for the next three weeks okay. and keep a diary of how that went, knowing that most of the time patients would, would unconsciously resist him by not doing what he told them to do huh. and actually do less of the behavior, but then come back and... Describe that. Anyway, it's a, that's, a, that's a superficial approach, but he, but he had a lot of. There's a lot of good books written about him and his very unique form of therapy. That when you read some of the cases that he would, the, the way he would uh, treat people and give them these these behavioral prescriptions, up to and including sending them to a library where he, they would, uh, you know. Uh, run into somebody, an acquaintance of his, and he would orchestrate all that, or send a couple that was having marital difficulties to a certain restaurant and he would arrange their meal with the maitre d' that somehow would tie into the therapy he was doing with them and things wow. like that. So stuff that you would never in a million years think of as like psychiatry or even normal psychotherapy, but he apparently had some really remarkable, you know, uh, treatment successes by thinking outside the box and thinking very creatively. Never met him because he died a number of years ago, but he, uh a very interesting figure in, in uh, psychiatry in the 20th century.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, thank you for having this discussion with us. I appreciate your expertise and your insights. And at this point, I just wanted to see if, if you had any final thoughts or...
2: I, you know, it, it's going to sound saccharine, but I would say I really do feel like our, our field is in great hands, looking at the two of you and your generation. Um, it You know, I'm seeing incredible amounts of compassion and creativity in uh, the upcoming generations of psychiatry, psychiatrists, and I think that's really a great thing. So as somebody on the tail end of my profession, it's
1: great to see that uh, we're in good hands here for the future.
0: Thank you so much.
1: All right. Well, thank you for listening to the History of Madness podcast. Uh, You can find us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you've got a minute, please leave us a comment or a rating. It really helps us grow the show. Thanks for listening.